When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Tom Van Doren about the new book, A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinctions. Following the trails of Hawaii's snails to explore the simultaneously biological and cultural significance of extinction. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much, Glenn. It's great to be here. So, can you tell us, what do you do? Um, Yeah, well, I'm an environmental philosopher uh, at uh, the University of Sydney, mainly. I'm also at the University of Oslo some of the time, um, working on extinction and conservation. And I've been doing that. That's been my main focus, really, for the last 10 or 15 years, um, thinking about what extinction means and why it matters in different ecosystems and different communities. And how did you get interested in this field? Yeah, well, I guess it, um, it, it grew in a way out of my PhD research, which was more focused on, on agriculture and thinking about um, people, especially farmers' relationships with seeds and how those relationships were changing um, in the context of restrictions on how they could use their seeds. But, but a little part of that work in my PhD was looking at uh, agricultural crop diversity and how that, that diversity was being lost and efforts to bank it and to, to hold on to it and starting to think about why that diversity mattered and how it was valued. And so I guess I segued after my PhD into thinking about non-crop varieties and especially thinking about birds. Um, and so I spent um, the next yeah, 10 years or so writing books about uh, endangered birds and extinct birds and, again, thinking about their relationships with different communities and ecosystems and trying to really tease out why the loss of those species mattered, how it unraveled different kinds of relationships 
um, cultural relationships, livelihood relationships, um, traditional cultural practices for some communities, but also um, ecosystem processes uh, in, in a whole range of different ways. So, yeah, really trying to tell specific stories about different uh, creatures to figure out why the, the loss of this species matters and how it, it unravels different kinds of relationships and possibilities. And so, yeah, more recently, I've, I've um, expanded beyond the birds uh, and into, in this book, thinking with snails. And how easy or difficult was it for you to incorporate this philosophy part uh, in combination with your uh, sort of really sciencey background? Um, yeah, well, I, I, um, I guess I've always worked between um, the sciences, the natural sciences, and the humanities. Um, most of my training was in was in philosophy, and um, but and then I guess I, I specialized more into the space of environmental philosophy, and that has really required me to to do a lot of uh, engaging to engage a lot with biological literatures and with ecologists with. Uh, conservation biologists, but um, I guess even more specifically than that, I've I've gotten very interested in behavioural biology uh, and evolutionary biology, and 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 all of those different um, different biological sciences, I guess, play a key role in drawing out one aspect of uh, or different aspects of what extinction means and how it matters in different places. So, I think there's a real need to to bring the biological sciences into closer conversation with the humanities, which is what what we we try to do in the field of environmental humanities, um, and to to see what they have to offer one another. I guess I think a lot a lot of the time when we think about extinction and a lot of other environmental issues, we assume that that's sort of the natural domain of the sciences, mm. uh, and of course the, the natural sciences have incredibly important roles to play in in all of these. Uh, issues but all of our environmental challenges today including biodiversity loss are fundamentally cultural and social and political and economic in a range of different ways so we really need to be working across uh, those disciplinary divides as best we can and throughout your career journey did you have mentors that really supported you and perhaps inspired you as well yeah, definitely. I've I've been incredibly lucky in that regard. Um, my main PhD supervisor was uh, the late anthropologist Deborah Bird Rose, and and she really was was doing a lot of that same kind of of work. She worked a lot with um, Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory in Australia, and right from the beginning of that work, which she started in the 1980s, she was working with those communities and going out on country with them uh, and with natural scientists, with botanists and geologists and uh, hydrologists and thinking about how um, how their knowledges, how local, uh, how Aboriginal knowledges of, of country and of, of kinship systems and more than human kinship systems, that is, um, how they intersected with the knowledges of these natural scientists and how they were able to work together and talk together. And so I was, um, yeah, very inspired by, by Debbie's work and she was a wonderful mentor as a PhD supervisor. And then, and then after that, um, we, we both sort of found ourselves drifting towards the topic of extinction. And so for the next 10 years or so, we worked together on, on a lot of different projects focused on, on extinction and tried to form uh, together and with our colleague, Matthew Trulu, this space we called Extinction Studies to try and, and draw out 
specifically what the humanities have to offer to thinking about uh, extinction. So Debbie was definitely um, one of my biggest uh, and most important mentors. Um, but I had a lot of, of others and I guess um, two other people I should mention who, who were also my, my other PhD um, advisors uh, were the, the eco-feminist philosopher Val Plumwood, who, who sadly died shortly after I finished my PhD, so we didn't uh, get a chance to work together in that way. Um, and then Donna Haraway, the, the scholar of science and technology studies, who uh, I continue to be in conversation with, although we, we live in different countries, but certainly her, her written work has greatly inspired my thinking and and it's I think her approach to ethics more than anything else that that really infuses my own writing and as a mentor yourself what would you say to our student listeners yeah well um I, I think the, the best bit of advice I got um, was to, to push around the edges of my discipline um, so I think I, I always encourage uh, younger scholars to do that. To I think it's much more interesting uh, to to borrow methods and ideas from from other disciplines and, and other approaches, and to try and bring those into conversation in new ways. I think that's where a lot of the important questions are, and a lot of the really important research. And, and there are challenges to doing that, especially as an early career researcher. So you have to do it, I think, wisely, and you have to do it mm. a bit strategically. But there, uh, it's certainly possible, and I think it's really important. And and maybe the the second one would be to to find ways to speak to broader audiences, and that I think is particularly important when we're dealing with environmental challenges, but but also with other key issues that we are not just talking to ourselves, that we are finding ways to communicate more broadly, to draw others into care and concern for the topics that we're interested in and I think as a scholar it also opens up new creative challenges and learning opportunities about how we do our work so it's also potentially really exciting and interesting. So your latest book is A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinctions. How did you come to writing it? Yeah, that's a, um, a little bit of a, a, a by chance, really, I guess. Um, I've, I've been working in Hawaii for about the last 10 years, but, but working in a range of other places as well. But I've kept coming back to Hawaii, mostly thinking about birds. Um, so as someone who, who writes a lot about extinction, uh, Hawaii is one of the extinction capitals of the world. Um, having lost an awful lot of species, an awful lot of birds is something that I have known for a long time and, and been in Hawaii looking at. And I, But I realised um, when I found out about the snails, um, actually many more species of snails have been lost in Hawaii and in many ways snail, uh, Hawaii was equally a land that was sort of rich in snails in the same way it was in birds. But that story really wasn't being told. And, of course, uh, groups of really dedicated snail biologists and conservationists and, and some really passionate um, Native Hawaiian um, activists thinking about snails very intensely in Hawaii. But beyond that, that relatively small group, uh, this massive loss of biodiversity was going on largely unnoticed. So that, and, and I myself hadn't noticed it and I had spent a fair bit of time in Hawaii talking about conservation. So I, um, I was really drawn into thinking about that and drawn into thinking with the snails about what it means to be, to be losing species that really we're not 
really conscious of in, in any real way. So drawing began to draw me into what I think about in the book as a, this unknown extinction crisis that's going on all around us that particularly impacting on on invertebrates like snails. Okay, so let's dive into the nitty-gritties of the book. And can we start with the very basic, just to make sure everybody's on the same page? Could you describe what exactly are snails? Well, I guess taxonomically, they're, they're gastropods and they're, uh, and they're part of the larger mollusks, um, which includes things like uh, octopus and cuttlefish and um, uh, the bivalves like mussels and clams. Um, but So the snails and the slugs are, are gastropods, uh, air-breathing mollusks. Um, and, um, and these guys, um, well, uh, are... Incredibly interesting, I guess, is what I discovered. Um, so that, I think, is the more important answer to your question about what kind of animals they are. They're, they're fascinating animals. Mm. Um, but I don't think we always appreciate that. So like, I guess like most people, the, the snails I thought of were garden snails who, as, a, as an avid vegetable gardener, um, are not always my friends. Um, but as I, I got to learn more about snails, I discovered the incredible diversity, of course, of you know, colours, shapes and sizes that they come in. Um, also the many different um, things that they're up to, that, for example, that none of the snails in Hawaii, uh, and there were over 750 species of snails in Hawaii, none of them ate living vegetation as far as we know. They primarily uh, scraped the microbes from the surface of leaves, some of them, and others were detritivores or are detritivores who are living amongst the leaf litter helping with that, that decomposition process. So they're not the snails, I guess, that many of us have in our heads that are these uh, drab brown or grey garden snails eating eating the lettuce. Um, they're a much more diverse group of creatures. Um, and I guess beyond that diversity, they're also much more interesting in terms of what they're getting up to. And that was one of the key aims of the book was to really try and draw out snail ways of life to, to draw the reader into these miniature worlds as best we can because of course it's very hard to get into the into the head of a snail but I, I spent time talking to behavioral biologists and reading that literature and and trying to to flesh out um how snails go about their lives uh, how how they how they occupy a whole different world if you like so thinking about things like chemoreception that snails don't rely on vision like most humans they have this you know their primary sense this taste smell sense of sort of chemically reading the world and what that means for them um so one of the things that it means that really fascinated me is that slime trails, that the slime trails that snails lay down, um, we you know assume most of the time that that's primarily about locomotion, that they move along through slime, which they do, of course. But those slime trails are also immensely important in terms of the information that they provide, the chemical cues that snails can, can read in one another's slime trails and draw out information about you know, who this other snail was. Are they potentially a good mate? Uh, are they one of their own kind? In the case of carnivorous snails who eat other snails, you know, is this potentially a good, a good uh, slime trail to follow for a meal? Um, so these these slime trails that we see through through the world around us when we're watching snails are also um, layers of meaning that are uh, are woven in, and that if you know, if you have the right 
sensory apparatus, you can be reading them. Uh, and of course, snails are doing that. Um, they're also learning about their environments, picking up new information about um, new sources of food. Um, and fascinatingly, some, some great work uh, over the last decade or so has shown that snails also are, are tuned into questions of social, whether they're, they're socially isolated or socially overcrowded by other snails and being either isolated or overcrowded leads to stress um, that has all sorts of interesting um, cognitive and metabolic impacts on snails. So they have uh, some sort of social life. Again, very difficult for us to access, but at least that's what the experiments are showing. So we don't, we don't have access to it. It's not just like our uh, lives in our world. It's not what I, not what I want to claim about snails, but they are their own little beings, perceiving, feeling, learning, and and when I think we begin to unpack some of what we know about snails, we begin to see them as as well, as one of the scientists I spoke to put it, something more than little bags of slime, and I think that is an immensely important thing to do if we're going to start to value these species that are disappearing at a staggering rate. So you tackle these uh, huge questions about extinctions and how and why did you decide to do it through the snail? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I mean, initially a bit of an accident that I um, was in Hawaii and I learned about um, this snail uh, laboratory where, where a whole lot of endangered snails were living at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And uh, it was really through through Donna Haraway, who I mentioned earlier, um, a friend of hers, Mike Hadfield, who she put me in touch with. And and Mike had was running this lab at, at UH, and he'd been doing that for a couple of decades at that point, and or maybe even a little longer. Um, and really, snails are not his not his area of expertise. Um, he's a microbiologist, but he uh, there was really no one else doing it, and so he became really concerned about these disappearing forest snails, especially some of the bigger, uh, more colourful snails of the genus Acatonella that had been listed under the endangered species, the US Endangered Species Act, but really weren't being conserved in any significant way. So he began taking them in and. I went to visit Mike and, and saw these living in environmental chambers, which look a lot like refrigerators, basically, um, and mm. was really fascinated by them. And fascinated in particular, I have to admit, by, by one snail, George, um, was what uh, this snail was called. Um, George, like like most um, land snails, is a, a, the species is hermaphroditic. Um, but George was normally referred to as a he, uh, so I'll, I'll do that just because it's um, simpler. But, um, but George was the last the last snail of the species Acatonella apex fulva. Oh wow! And this was yeah, my first, this was my first encounter with what um, we now call endlings. These the last individuals of a kind, and that was in in 2013. And I was. I guess just very struck um, emotionally by being in the presence of this individual who was, you know, the last of its kind, who was, um, yeah, the, I guess the, the whole evolutionary history of this species was condensed in this one little individual really, um, yeah, I guess like most, like for most people who encounter an endling, it really, really hit me. Um, 
And so that encounter stuck with me and I thought about it and I wrote a little bit about it, but um, I didn't come back to snails for a few more years. Um, and But it, I think it really was that encounter that, that drew me into thinking a bit more about the snails. Um, and from then, as I got to learn more about them, I realised that, that they offered a really important way of thinking about the, the extinction crisis that was a bit different to what I had been doing with the birds. And I guess that's, that is one of the main um, commitments of the kind of work that I've been doing on extinction that, that also Debbie Rose um, has, was doing herself also was this uh, approach that we were trying to develop extinction studies, just really thinking through specific species rather than asking in abstract terms, what does extinction mean and why does it matter sort of across all of the taxa? We were asking, what does it mean to really pay attention to to this extinction? What is lost in this extinction? And, and when you do that, you realise that every extinction, every loss of species is its own unique happening that unravels relationships and possibilities in very different ways. And so it makes sense, of course, that moving from thinking with birds to thinking with snails, a whole host of different questions come up. So that's what I began to find with the snails. And and I guess one of the, the biggest differences that was, was really important to me and I saw an opportunity to think about more deeply with this book was this unknown extinction crisis, the fact that um, you know, invertebrates make up 99% of the animal kingdom, uh, but most of them are even described by science, let alone understood in any meaningful way, and they're disappearing rapidly. So the best estimates are probably that we've... Uh, described some something like twenty percent of of the Earth's um, species, and uh, an awful lot of those eighty percent that are remaining to be described are invertebrates, invertebrate animals. So for ev- that means basically that for, for every species that goes extinct that we have have described that we know about in some some way, um, another four disappear that haven't even got a name um so this is i think an incredibly difficult thing to really get a handle on and to make sense of that we you know we all have a sense that we're living in uh what is now often being described as a mass extinction event that species are disappearing at a staggering rate but the reality is that our ability to make sense of that to to name it in any meaningful way is is thoroughly compromised by just a, a profound lack of knowledge about the world around us uh, and that the real heart of that lack of knowledge is the invertebrate world. And so snails for me were a, a way of really trying to get into that and think more about, about this unknown extinction crisis. Um, and then I, I guess the other element of what I really wanted to do with, with this book and with thinking with snails in particular um, was to to draw out for a broader audience the way that extinction as a phenomenon cuts across ecological and cultural uh, systems, if you like, across rather than being something that happens out there in the environment, um, that extinction is something that that ripples out into the world in really complex ways. And so by slowing down in Hawaii, 
Um, I was really trying to draw out how processes of, of colonization and militarization and globalization, all of which are, are going on in Hawaii and all of which are bound up in this history of, of snail uh, decline, um, how they are part of the extinction story. And, and doing that, I think, is really important because it, it gets us beyond thinking about our current moment as one of uh, an anthropogenic extinction crisis in which you know, anthropos humans in general are, are causing the, the loss of biodiversity on a massive scale. Instead, I think when we slow down and get more specific about particular losses, um, we see that, that actually it's very particular ways of life, particular cultural practices, particular economic systems um, that are the causes of much of the loss of biodiversity. Um, and it's also other cultural systems, other ways of valuing and living in the environment that are being impacted on um, most profoundly. And in, in Hawaii, of course, uh, I spend a fair bit of time in the book thinking about uh, Kanaka Māori, na Native Hawaiians, and their relationships with snails and snail stories and how those are also uh, impacted on in different ways by this loss of species. So you focus on the species in Hawaii. Why do these islands have such a huge amount of biodiversity, especially in snail populations? Yeah, um, thanks. That's a great question. Um, that was one of the things that really drew me into, into thinking in Hawaii. Um, they, Hawaii has over 750 um, species, recognized species of, of land snails, which is an incredible amount. Um, it's, it's about two-thirds of the number of species that are found in the whole of uh, North America, which is obviously a significantly larger um, landmass. Uh, so Hawaii has been really a, a little um, engine for the evolution of, of snail diversity. Um, it's been really an ideal environment uh, in which uh, snails, those, those few snails that have arrived uh, over the, the last several million years have speciated uh, again and again to produce this incredible diversity. Um, so one of the things that really got me interested in thinking about snails in Hawaii was uh, this question of how they all got there. And that, I guess, was the, the sort of the first puzzle that got me um, that really drew me into thinking about snails and, and that I started to ask people about well, how these islands are out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and we know that they formed uh, out in the ocean over a volcanic hotspot so they've never been attached to land. So all of the snails that are there um, got there over oceans and, of course, snails are not uh, long-distance travellers as a general rule, um, certainly not, in, not uh, most of the time, and, and they don't do well with salt water. So how did they all get there? Um, so that was one of the, the questions that really drew me in that I would be very happy to talk about more. But, um, but really the, the main reason that, um, that I thought Hawaii was such an important site to explore um, was the fact that these species are, are disappearing at such a staggering rate. And um, in that regard, Hawaii is uh, not entirely um, unique uh, Ocean, uh, oceanic islands that are high in snail diversity have been incredibly hard hit all over the world. Um, but it's a really staggering um, situation to almost two-thirds of the species of, of land snails that we know of in Hawaii are gone, and the rest of the, those that remain are, um, you know, 
very rapidly uh, approaching the edge of extinction, at least most of them are. So it's a really pressing crisis. Um, but from my um, perspective, it was also a really important site for thinking about extinction because it's such a, uh, a small area, relatively speaking. And so, so many of the forces that I wanted to think about are really condensed in Hawaii in a really fascinating way. Um, so you, you have this really rich um, human history as well of the arrival of Polynesian peoples, of colonization and militarization, and all happening within this relatively small space, which is, of course, a big part of how Hawaii has come to be one of the extinction capitals of the world, that, that all of these um, processes are, are layered over one another and we have a landscape of really high endemism um, with so much going on there, so much destruction in many cases of the landscape since, especially since Euro, European and American arrival. Um, and so it's a, a landscape that, you know, where there are a lot of important extinction stories to be told. Uh, and so um, one that yeah I thought would be a, a, a great um, site for trying to draw out this invertebrate crisis that's going on all over the world. So many of us are familiar with our garden snails and how they look. They're quite small and uh, kind of earthy colors. So could you describe perhaps a couple of species that you came across that you like really, really liked? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the, the snails in Hawaii are a very diverse bunch. Um, and uh, so they're, they come in all sorts of colors and, and sizes. Um, the, the genus Acatonella has been particularly well studied and well appreciated. Um, sometimes um, as a result, they've been collected on mass, which of course has not worked out very well for them. Um, but those are, those snails come in, you know, in yellows and, and greens and reds and mahogany brown. And, um, but more than the colors, I guess they come also in all sorts of patterns, patterns like stripes and um, tortoise shell and all sorts of, um, really beautiful uh, patterns, um, and and that's just one genus. Uh, and then there's all sorts of other, uh, you know, tiny little snails with um, translucent shells, so that you can see their internal uh, organs. In some cases, in the the genus Succinia. Um so um, they're yeah, they're, they're a very diverse bunch. Some of the the ones that really spoke to me, uh, one, one of them was was uh, Laminella sanguinea. Um, which is a species with a beautifully patterned shell that has a, a kind of, um, a lot of red on it, and then a, a lightning bolt sort of pattern that, that comes down from from the apex to the aperture all over the shell. These little lightning bolts. Um, but the first snail of that species that I saw, which was in a one of the the captive facilities out in the forest, a, a fenced captive area. Um, it uh, you couldn't see any of those beautiful patterns, and so I only knew about them because um, the the scientist I was with, um, David Cisco, he he told me about the the beautiful patterns, and I went and looked up some photos afterwards. But the, this individual that I saw was all crusted in in brown gunk, which I was told was actually its own sort of excreted excrement, um, which which snails can excrete from around um, the mantle, and so. Um, this is, I think, a fascinating snail, um, partly because it is beautiful uh, underneath that, but we, we very rarely see that beauty. Um, and so if, while there are some different theories about why this snail might cover its own shell 
in its own excrement. It might be to do with thermal regulation or camouflage or none of them are very good um, explanations. And so that species for me became a really um, nice reminder of the fact that snails are different species are unique ways of life they're not sort of essentially the same little slimy creatures in different shells which i think is the way we often think about snails because we when we focus on their when we become attuned to their diversity we focus on the little bit of it that is most obvious to us which is you know they're differently colored shells or differently shaped shells but actually they're different ways of life different snail species um, they're getting up to different kinds of things living in different kinds of places and this um, curious little creature that for reasons unknown covers its own shell in its excrement mm. was a really nice reminder that there's there's more to to learn and we need to learn to to see and appreciate those differences amongst the snails better hey some primates fling their own poop why not cover your house with it <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah Did you come across any venomous snails? No, no, not in uh, not amongst the land snails of Hawaii. I don't think there are any. Um, mm. There are obviously, in, yeah, in other parts of the world, and and especially oceanic snails. So, what is the place of snail within their ecological niche? So, of course, they they occupy different niches, but what do we know of their importance to their environment? Yeah, that was another question that really fascinated me because um, the answer is that it's a little bit confusing. Um, so the, there's sort of two main groups of uh, land snails in Hawaii. There's the the ones, the tree snails that live amongst um, the the living vegetation and, and scrape the leaves uh, for microbes with their specialized radula, which is sort of like a snail tongue in a way um, on the foot side of the snail, obviously. Um, So those guys, um, we don't really know what they did. There have been um, some studies uh, that have looked at, uh, tried to ask, well, well um, did they clean the leaves in a way that might have helped photosynthesis or did they clean microbes off leaves in a way that might have helped to reduce pathogens and, and disease uh, amongst plants? Um, but the reality is we're coming to so many of these questions so late when so many of these snails are gone. The, the Even um, a couple of hundred years ago, the, the um, accounts by naturalists um, are of you know, trees dripping with snails, that they were like um, bunches of grapes hanging from the trees um, and beautiful bunches of grapes. They're described as living jewels by one of the, the early naturalists. Um, And so they were just there in abundance. Um, and so as as Mike Hadfield, the bi biologist, put it to me quite bluntly, he said they just must have done something. Um, but we really don't know what that something was amongst those snails. Um, they were probably eaten by birds. Um, and in fact, one of the theories is that the, some of the bigger snails moved into the trees, higher up into the trees and became bigger to avoid being eaten by ground Uh, dwelling birds but um so many of those birds are also gone and have been gone for quite a long time um so that we don't even have a lot of evidence of native birds eating snails um mm. because most of those native birds are gone um we know that that the odd one did the the pooli uh, a little hawaiian bird um which is now extinct um in the, the sort of short period in which between when it was dis discovered by western science and 
went extinct, which was a period, I think, of only a decade or two, um, it was documented eating some of the smaller snails. Um, so, so we know that at least some birds ate snails at some point. Um, and, and that's one of the, the sort of less glamorous ecological roles that snails fill all over the world. They're important sources of food, especially important sources of calcium in their shells for, for breeding birds uh, who are obviously you know, looking for calcium for their own eggs. Um, so they, they probably played that role in the past. And then, and then the other big group of snails, in a way, are the detritivores. And, and they obviously would have broken down leaf matter and helped to, to create soils, which is an important role on volcanic islands um, and import, in, in, um, an even more important role in somewhere like Hawaii that didn't have earthworms until relatively recently. So snails would have done a lot of that work. Mm. So, so the answer is a little bit of a mystery, um, and, uh, but they, they probably had some sorts of roles, but the reality is that they probably don't have essential roles anymore, at least as far as, as we know, with so many of those birds gone with the arrival of earthworms. Um, and so that was one of the tensions that I found really interesting in thinking about the snails is you know, all over the world when we hear that species are disappearing, we would like to have a really nice, neat story that says that this species or this group of species um, play this really vital ecological role and we really need to keep them in the ecosystem to, to keep you know, things ticking along healthily. Um, that really, as far as we know, just isn't the case with these snails anymore. Um, and, and we don't really understand how it was the case in the past, although there's, you know, there's some pretty good ideas about what it might have been. Um, so how do we... we do conservation work in the absence of that kind of a neat ecological story? Um, and how does that, that sort of shift the way we tell these stories, the way we, we explain why these species matter? Um, and, and I think it does shift some of these things around in important ways and, and open up questions about why conservation matters and how we communicate it effectively. That is so interesting. It really speaks of of our own fallacies, doesn't it? About thinking that something has to have specific purpose that we must understand right away. Because maybe some of those species were parasitic species perhaps, and or just, you know, there mm. for the ride. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and and the fact that that some species played some important role in ecosystems past doesn't necessarily mean it, it it will continue to play an important role as those ecosystems, especially in in places like Hawaii, where where ecosystems have been so radically transformed. Um, yeah, it's it, it's all a big shifting mosaic, and um, yeah, the desire to find these these simple stories about why and how species matter and what role they play are, are still there, but they're, um, they're not the only reasons to value species. And I guess one of the big things I wanted to do in this book was to, to draw out all of the other reasons that, that snails matter. And those, you know, they might be to do with, with things just like appreciating the, the, these different ways of life. What in philosophy we often talk about is in, intrinsic value of species that even if they're not doing anything for anyone, they are, you know, they're their own creatures doing their own things and we ought to um we ought to learn to see and appreciate that and i think that that is an important argument to be made but it's not the only one here i think there are also all sorts of uh, cultural uh significances that these snails still carry for native hawaiians especially 
Um, there are also all sorts of really fascinating scientific questions that these snails have played a role in helping us to understand and are continuing to play a role in. And that goes from questions about biogeography to questions about taxonomy to questions about climate change and its impacts on um, and potential future impacts on these islands. So the, the snails continue to have a whole range of other significances. And that was my next question. So what does this climate crisis mean for snails? Yeah, that, that's a little bit unclear still too. Um, it's Climate change is going to and is impacting on Hawaii significantly. And gastropods, of course, like snails, are uh, moisture dependent. Um, they, they need to be kept moist, which is why they have shells. Um and how they use their slime to seal up in their shells during the, the hot part of the day, for example. Um, they're also very temperature dependent. Uh, so the the generally decreased rainfall and increased temperature in, in Hawaii is not going to go well for the snails that, that remain. Um, but it's a little bit unclear yet how... Um, how exactly that will play out. And, and I guess the sad reality for a lot of these snails is that they already have been so badly impacted by other causes. Um, and, and I should say the main causes of snail decline in Hawaii are, are complex. Um, but at, at this stage, it's especially introduced predators that are really, are really destroying them. So that's um, rats and chameleons but most especially an introduced snail the rosy wolf snail which is one of these carnivorous snails that tracks the slime trails of the native species and, and eats them at a staggering rate um, so these rosy wolf snails were introduced in the 50s and they have spread uh, over all of the hawaiian islands and and at the moment and for the last you know 50 odd years they have really been the the main cause of a snail decline but there were other causes before that and and that included uh, a big shell collecting craze uh, from the 1800s or 1820s when the missionaries arrived in hawaii and the, the sons of missionaries in particular really took to shell collecting um, mm. and decimated some species um, and and then all through that period as well um, the the loss of habitat has been massive and that's was for plantations of sugar and pineapple and others but now it's for things like the military and tourism and, and other other things as well so it's um it's all of these factors coming together in hawaii that have, have put us in this really or put the snails in this really terrible position where two th almost two-thirds of them are gone and most of those that remain are right at the edge of extinction and now climate change is um is being woven into that mix as well um in, and so the yeah the outcome is is you know pretty going to be pretty difficult i guess um for a lot of these snails um but you know there are hopes that that there might still be some viable habitat for them especially at, at higher elevations so what kind of uh, approaches to the local governments, perhaps, and communities implement to address some of these issues? Yeah, they, that was one of the things that, that, again, really drew me out. There are many things that drew me into this story. Uh, I hope I hope is clear. I found a lot of what was going on just to be to be thoroughly fascinating. So I've, I've mentioned the, the captive breeding uh, laboratory at the University of Hawaii. 
Um, and that facility has, since I first visited it, has become a, a state government um, run facility. So conservation of these snails is overseen in Hawaii by the Snail Extinction Prevention Program. Um, and so they now run this captive laboratory facility, um, which has these environmental chambers. And so a whole lot of species, I think about 40 or 45 species, thousands and thousands of individuals are kept in this um, in these, these environmental chambers. Um, and so that's one of the main ways in which uh, the snails are being conserved. But the other one is a fascinating series of, um, they're called exclosures. Um, they're basically little fenced areas in the forest. Um, and so over the last several decades, the uh, scientists in Hawaii have figured out a series of barriers that can keep these predators that I mentioned uh, out of a section of the forest. Um, and that's particularly complicated with these rosy wolf snails, the carnivorous snails. Um, so for them, there's there's a series of, of three uh, barriers that are built into the fence. So a, a rosy wolf snail that tries to, to climb up into this protected area um, hits a sort of an angle guard, um, which is a, a bit of metal basically coming out from the fence wall. Um, that it, it can't get around. If it manages to get over that, though, it's got to somehow crawl upside down along this shelf of, with spiky wire, and most snails can't maintain their, their um, adhesion and they fall off and they can't get any higher. But if they do manage to get over that second barrier, they come across some um, electrical wires that are powered by solar power and they get shocked and then hopefully they drop off. And so this series of, of three barriers that's been developed over the decade, last couple of decades has proved to be very effective at keeping these um, predatory snails out of these very small areas of the forest. Uh, so some of the native species are now being conserved in the forest uh, in these little areas. Uh, so they're, they're, those are the two main conservation options for snails, sadly. It's, um, it's really become a situation where the only real possibility for life is in in one of those protected areas snails that are out and about in the landscape are by and large just being decimated by uh their by their predators so it's a it's a really difficult situation because of course that means that any long-term um restoration of the species is really going to require us to be able to do something about their predators to to get them out of the landscape and there really isn't uh, a way of doing that at this stage there's there's a few sort of speculations about how that might be done but uh, and animals like rats have been poisoned and and trapped to try and reduce their numbers mm. but it's very difficult to remove snails uh, these predatory snails from the landscape and there isn't really an idea about how to do that and certainly not in a way that wouldn't potentially also harm the native snails. Um, so some of the biocontrol options, for example, might uh, might kill a, an introduced wolf snail, but they might also kill all the native species. So it's a it's a really difficult situation. That's another one of the questions that I really try and grapple with in the book. What what does it mean to hold on to species um, in captivity in protected areas when we really don't have a clear sense of how we might ever restore them. I think we've we've gotten used to thinking about conservation biology as a, as a crisis discipline, as Michael Soule put it mm. many decades ago. Um, but um, 
And, and so we think about it as a kind of emergency room work, um, often trying to patch species up and send them off on their way. But I, I suggested in the book that that it might be more appropriate to think about these particular captive facilities as something more like a hospice that really there isn't a vision for how to patch them up. And, and that what we see with species, like Akatanella apex fulva that I mentioned earlier when George was the last individual. Um, George died in, um, well, in the middle of me writing this book in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the end of, of that species. And it really, you know, I guess drove home to me that, you know, they're not all going to get out of these facilities back into the landscape, that, that this is going to be the final spot for them and in George's case it was um he was the last member of his species for about 10 years living on in in captivity and isolation um and so that that lonely decade in in captivity really was a kind of hospice situation in many ways we really there wasn't any hope left unless you know other individuals were somehow found in the forest after you know all those years of looking but they weren't um so yeah i guess um, the conservation situation, I think, uh, and this is not unique to Hawaii, to snails or to Hawaii. I think all over the world, captive breeding um, options uh, are on the rise. Um, this side, when species are threatened in their landscape, this idea of getting them out, putting them somewhere safe, is very appealing. Um, but for an awful lot of those species, we just can't ever get them back out into the landscape in a sustainable way, and so what we're doing is not so much conserving, I think, as delaying and drawing out uh, their extinctions. And, and that, I think, is a unfortunate and maybe, maybe it is worth still doing some of the time, but I think we need to, to be a little bit more um, honest than we often are about what the, the chances of survival are here and what we're really we're doing when we think we're conserving. So what would you like to see for the future of uh, snail conservation, perhaps on a short term and thinking more in the long term? Um, yeah, well, um, it's a, that's a, is a really difficult question because I think that we don't have an awful lot of options in Hawaii. I think what the team are doing there is everything they can be, with it, certainly with the funding that they have available to them. Um, and that's really just holding on to these as many of these species as they can um, in case something changes, in case it becomes possible for them to be restored, um, I think one of the, I think we we what we really need though, in addition to that concrete you know, con- on the ground conservation efforts, is um, a, a, f- a fuller sense of appreciation of all of these disappearing species, not just snails, but but all of the many many species that we haven't even named that are that are disappearing around us, the, the ones that we dismiss as as you know. Uh, insignificant, uh, insignificant invertebrates, um, and, and we need to learn to see and appreciate them much better than we have in order to to take on that creative, imaginative work of uh, cultural work, really, of of valuing these things that have been invisible for too long. Um, so I think that's a big that's a big part of obviously what I'm trying to do in in this book and in a lot of my other work is to do the kind of storytelling work that helps to make those um, lives that sometimes seem insignificant more significant. Um, 
one of the, the big things that's going on in Hawaii that I think is really important that we need more of is in working with Kanaka Māori, with Native Hawaiians, to, to really um, draw out what these snails mean to them. That's a big part of this, of this story in Hawaii, um, that the, uh, the, the snails uh, have woven themselves into um, Native Hawaiian culture in really fascinating ways that they, one of the most important um, associations that the snails have in, in Native Hawaiian stories is that they're said to sing in the forest at night, that these, mm. that they don't just sing at any old time though, they sing often in a story as a sign that everything is pono, everything is is righteous and correct and, and sort of the story has reached a, a harmonious resolution, if you like. So there are these really incredible um Cultural, uh, culturally significant creatures too. That um, uh, Cody Pueo Pato, who's a, a kumuhula, who I interviewed, who are a teacher of hula, who I quote a bit in the book. He um, he talks a lot about how the about the cultural significance of snails and about how they are said to appear with the forest goddesses and that they chirp and they they have all of these really important significances. So one of the things that we um, that I'm I'm trying to think about in the book uh, as a as a non-native Hawaiian person myself, of course, drawing on on the stories that were generously shared with me, is you know, what does it mean for this voice of the forest, uh, as the snail is sometimes called, to be to disappear? How does that impact on on these stories? How can these uh, stories and cultural associations endure in the world when uh, when the anchor for them, if you like, these these creatures themselves are disappearing. So that's a, a big part of thickening up our understanding of what this extinction means and why it matters. Um, and, and that I think uh, not only understanding and sharing those stories where, where um, Native Hawaiians would like to share them, um, not only doing that is, is particularly important, but then working collaboratively um, with Native Hawaiian groups to, to think about how to conserve well in these particular places where that history of snail decline is so intimately tangled up with this history of colonization um, with the overwriting of of native hawaiian relationships with land and place and and these days you know, one of the 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 biggest users of land in in hawaii especially on the island of oahu is the u.s military and if and you know not just using land in in friendly ways but uh, blowing up land, dumping weapons, um, and uh, and so I think yeah, having impacts on on the environment in a range of ways, and so that's a you know an ongoing legacy, if you like, of the of the colonial uh, occupy and the occupation of the Hawaiian Islands. So that also needs to be part of the story. And and there's a chapter in the book on on this complex relationship with the, the US military and and how the snails have been drawn into that. So it's a, it's a big, um, thick, complex story, I guess. And uh, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying around, around storytelling is that we really need to be telling these kinds of stories that draw out all of the layers of history, the layers of significance that these creatures have. Um, and, and through that coming to appreciate what's being lost here and to approach those losses and our conservation efforts in ways that are more informed, more creative, more inclusive of diverse perspectives and communities. Mm, yeah, that definitely addresses the bigger picture that we need to really open our eyes. 
I hope so. It's a big, it's a big job, and this is, of course, just you know. I mean, there's many snail species in Hawaii, but um, there are species disappearing all over the world, and I think they all need they all need this kind of close attention. Um, they all need more more funding, uh, more interest than than they're getting. Um, of course, some of them, like most of the invertebrates, get much much less than their fair share, but um, you know, we're, we're we're failing even with some of the most charismatic mammals and birds. And what discoveries in your research and during writing your book, A World in a Shell, surprised you the most? Yeah, yeah. So many things, I guess, is probably is clear from, from the interview so far. Mm -hmm. I was surprised continuously along the way. Um, I, I think um, really the book began with, with one big um question um, which was this question of how all of these snails ended up out in the middle of the pacific ocean um and so i um i spent uh, a lot of time thinking and talking to people about that and i won't well i'll give you the spoiler version for for the interview but you'll have to read the longer discussion in the book mm. um the the um the simplest uh, answer is that most of those early snails probably arrived on birds. They probably flew to Hawaii, um, although some may have travelled around up in the airstream, and it turns out that tiny little snails can be blown an awful long way um, up in the air. So, yeah, but how those snails got to Hawaii and how probably from around 20 or 30 arrivals over a period of 5 million years, um, we've ended up with hundreds and hundreds of snails of all different colors and sizes and um, that, that uh, species, incredible speciation that's happened. But yeah, that the arrival via bird was, was difficult for me to accept for quite a while. It had to be, um, yeah, mm. had to be said to me by many scientists. I had to really go and look at the, at what limited literature there is about uh, people noticing snails on birds when they're surveying them and so to accept that this this might be uh, a possibility for how all these snails got here. Kudos to them. The in-flight service must have been terrible. Yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> so I've got a question. I don't know if um, if this is correct, but are slugs also snails, but just without the house? <laughs> how do they fit in? Yeah. Yes, yes. No, well, in, in a way, they certainly are. The, well, snails evolved first, and, and slugs are basically snails that have lost their shell or more accurately internalized their shell. Um, and to complicate things, though, there are things called semi slugs, which have a very small shell, um, mm. too small for them to withdraw into. So, yeah, they're, they're all gastropods they're, um, and closely related. Um, but I think the, the, what your question makes me think of is. Uh, Another really fascinating thing that, that came up in the book, which is that I had often thought about a, a shell as a snail's home or house, um, but I discovered that, it, that really while we tend to think about snails as these kind of itinerant wanderers who carry their homes on their backs and you know, withdraw into them and sleep wherever they like, um, that that isn't really how snails get around the environment, that they are tied to particular home ranges. They move around them in often in quite regular ways. Um, they have Many of them have specific home sites that they go back to each day, often joining up with other snails and, and resting there together. So they have these kind of home 
patches. And in fact, the biologists call it a homing behavior to come back to this spot each day. So they carry a shelter on their backs, a really important mm-hmm. shelter, but, um, but they actually do have a kind of meaningful uh, map of the landscape and they do have spots in the landscape that, that we might think about as their homes. Um, so, yeah, another little tidbit about snail life. <laughs> And also, are snails really that slow or are they fast snails? No, I think they probably are really that slow. Yeah, this is one of the, one of the troubles of, of walking with one foot on a sticky substance. Um, but it does, um, the, this, the mucus that they walk on, which is, which is sticky, not, slime, not slippery, um, it's sort of like a glue, um, really, in addition to all of the things it's opened up for them in terms of the social meanings and stuff they're able to read out of one another's slime trails. Um, it also, of course, enables snails to move around upside down and, and you know, up trees. And so it opens up a whole three-dimensional world that um, walking on a gluey substance that just wouldn't be available to a relatively small animal with a, a big shell on its back otherwise. So they're very, they're very well adapted for the things they do, but it mm-hmm. just doesn't always seem like the most logical way to get around. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So what are you working on now? What, and what will be your next project? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going, I'm still working with the animals. I'm working on a few things, but, but one of them that I hope will be a, a, a next book um, is looking at conservation behavior um, as, a, as a field of science. So this is efforts to intervene in or to understand animal behavior as a way of achieving conservation outcomes. So I became really fascinated in an earlier book um, with this project in the Mojave Desert where the scientists were basically trying to teach the ravens not to eat the endangered tortoises um, through conditioned taste aversion. They were basically um, giving them a nasty experience when they tried to eat a tortoise, uh, desert tortoise, and they would learn not to do it again. Um, and as I started to look into that, I discovered a whole world of people doing conservationists doing similar things. Um, so I'd really, uh, I'm really hoping to, to write a next book drilling down into some of those cases and, as in a lot of my work, exploring um, some of the ethical questions that are raised here, but also the, the, some of the more historical questions about how animal behaviour got left out of conservation in the first place, I think is a fascinating question. Um, and, and these efforts to, to think more about animals as complex creatures who are each in their own ways learning about the environment and might learn to live differently in the environment. Um, so I think it, taking animal behaviour and cognition and learning seriously in the conservation sciences is a fascinating thing to be doing. Uh, and I really just want to, to understand what's going on here and how, um, how that opens up new possibilities, not only for scientists, but also for local communities um, to live differently with endangered species. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. From here, I hope that we can learn maybe to condition humans as well. You know, when we reach for the next barrel of oil, somebody would go and, that human, no, <laughs> that's enough. Yeah, no, this is, that's very true. And it's one of the things that some of these scientists have said to me is that basically, we're, as in the case I mentioned in the Mojave Desert, we're trying to teach ravens to live differently because we've failed so completely to teach humans mm. to live sustainably. Uh, because the root of that that conservation issue like all of the others we've been talking about is is human behavior it's the and not humans generically but particular ways of living in that desert that that ought never have, to have happened 
uh, that have led to this explosion of raven numbers. So yeah, it's um it's very sad when we have to try and teach other animals to live better to make up for the fact that we we fail so <laughs> utterly um, to convince other humans to live better. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about your work and also your book? Yeah, well, just, I guess, Google um, A World in a Shell or Tom Van Doren. I have a website at uh, tomvandoren.org that has information on all my projects. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lena. It was lovely to speak to you.